This week's Property Matters on Dublin South FM, the show that brings global trends to an Irish audience. You can contact us on Twitter at iPropertyRadio or by email at hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Your host for today is myself, Carol Tallon. Due to um, ongoing COVID-19 restrictions, we're still recording remotely, so please um, accept our apologies for any sound quality or any sound inconsistencies. We're we're obviously doing our best with the technology at hand. Um, I'm delighted to be joined now remotely, of course, by Orla Hegarty, Assistant Professor in the School of Architecture, Planning and Environmental Policy at UCD. Orla, thank you so much for joining me. Good morning, Carol. So, um, Orla, you've been one of the most um, outspoken and, dare I say, interesting commentators in the property sector, you know, talking about maybe policy changes, you know, things that really need to happen. And it feels like now, as the market is in absolute disruption, um, possibly in ways that are very different to what we saw in the recession a decade ago, it feels like this is really the time to maybe have a conversation and see if these things can be progressed. So let's start by saying, you know, what are you seeing in the, in, um, the marketplace at the moment? Obviously, I, I assume your lectures are, are they being done remotely or are, are things on hold? Uh, well, UCD is uh, obviously the bit, the campus is closed at the moment, but but uh, le- uh, teaching all moved online in the middle of March, mm-hmm. um, which happened to be during the midterm break. So for a lot of students, they went on their midterm break and they, they didn't come back. Um, so I, I think that through enormous effort on the part of a lot of people, um, that's been that's been working uh, fairly well and they're now into the exam time of year. OK, and what happens for people, say, who are at, um, particularly, you know, in their final year of exams, you know, are, are they are they operating on an assessment basis or will the exams be held online? Uh, the exams are happening online in, in, in various different uh, formats. Um, and uh, obviously that's a complete change from what would have happened previously. People would have been used to exam halls. And I suppose it's it's a little bit like the Leaving Cert, you know, uh, decisions have to be made um, uh, to, to keep things moving. And there are people who are doing their finals at the moment yes through through that media that's that's a difficult one but you know something struck me in advance of our conversation you know that your education the next generation that will be involved in the design and build of our built environment and we know that there's so much potential for change so much potential for improvement and we can see that technology whether it's prop tech or um, planning technology for the planning or construction, you know, we can see that there's been a huge wave of innovation, certainly over the past three to four years. Um, So this strikes me as a bit of a baptism of fire for the students leaving you and coming into industry. They are already embracing um, a future that maybe their more experienced colleagues, you know, will be struggling to adapt to. So, I mean, how are you preparing, say, people in their final year? You know, how are you preparing them for the industry that lies ahead. Well, the students that I'm involved with are, are actually working, they're architecture graduates who are doing their professional exams. So they're actually out in the real world. So I have a sense of, of what's happening on their sites and in their projects as well. Um, I, I think I sometimes what people, you know, see architects maybe as, as being building designers, they're actually trained as very complex problem solvers. Um, mm-hmm. Design is really about, you know, how do you manage very complex problems? How do you pull solutions out of it? And how do you being very big teams together over long periods of time in some kind of structured way to not lose sight of what you were doing and, and, to, and to achieve results. Um, so I think that's a skill set that is really, really going to be terribly valuable as we come through this crisis and out of it, because there is no roadmap at the moment. Um, we have no uh, notion. I mean, we've often been in circumstances before where, you know, there was some sense of how do you how do you deal with a recession or how do you deal with a disruption in a supply chain or something. But this, you know, this is kind of seismic, I suppose, across and it's global. So we don't have the outlet of emigration we had before for people out of the property and construction sector. Um, we do now have them available to do work here. And and we do have to decide how best to deploy those resources. Um, so I think the people who are trained in, in areas like architecture, uh, what they can bring to it is that flexible thinking and that kind of creative 
ability um, that isn't just about how you uh, organize uh, buildings and organize supply chains and put procurement in place but is also you know uh, you know much broader I mean and architects are educated in in resources in the built environment in you know in water in sustainability in you know a whole range of areas that are very relevant now to be brought into the mix. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, you talk about uh, design going so far beyond, you know, maybe what we might have typically thought about design into the more logistical side of it. And it's interesting. I, You know, I heard um, Ger Fahid, the managing director of Horizon Offsite, and they're one of the leading offsite construction manufacturers in Ireland. You know, and, and I heard him talk about how, you know, design goes beyond the design of the building. It's the design, you know, there's a lot of logistical solutions that need to be designed, whether it's the site, whether it's accessing the site, whether it's actually um, delivering a, a, a manufactured component to site and, and um, installing it under, in some cases, um, maybe some restrictions in terms of site size or access. So I think that's a really interesting point that the design goes right across um, the sphere. But yeah, and in changing I, conditions, you know, I mean, the, the of course, you know, when as we work through this, things will be changing. You know, as you can see with the health service having to be responsive every day to different conditions, um, and so it will be for everybody else. So we need people who can be uh, quite responsive and also quite proactive. You know, it's it's the thinker. You know, it's really the creative people and the people who can get things done on a practical level who are going to be the most useful now. Yeah, that, you know, I, I wonder, has that always been the case? And maybe it just got kind of buried under, you know, under maybe some other layers of professional building up. But, you know, I think it's interesting when you talk about the need to approach this recovery because it is it is a recovery of form, but it's not the recovery that we're used to talking about, say, from the previous recession. So I think it's interesting when you talk about the need to approach this very differently, because obviously it's a very different set of circumstances. But I and I understand when you say that we don't have um, the the emigration option open to us. But one of the things we saw over the past decade is that um, Irish expertise, you know, was moving beyond in the construction sector and particularly um across architecture, design, engineering, you know, we saw it moving from an emigration model to really more of an export model and technology enables that, you know, so maybe is that something that we need to be focusing on right now for for the for the current generation. Well, I mean, certainly pre 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 Corona, and it's just as valid now. Um, I, I thought that uh, the, to to for the government to take a much more proactive ro- approach on climate change and the built environment, Ireland could have been a major exporter. Um, we we have the technical skill and ability here, and we also you know could have used our housing program and our building program as the means to develop further innovation and to be the exporter of that and that is a huge growth industry it would be enormously supported by Europe under the new green deal uh, and it would have built permanent jobs here that wouldn't have been as uh, susceptible to the kind of boom bust cycle that we are used to and uh, never mind all of the side benefits we would have by having you know better quality building and retrofitted our own stock which you know obviously improves health improves asset value and everything else um, so I think uh, now you know as a really good time to start thinking like that as well um how do we how do we build a new um opportunities out of this you know and and all the people listening to who are in business will know that it's often how well you can adapt um to circumstances and embrace kind of opportunities maybe that others don't see that that determine you know how you how you deal with difficult situations um and yeah. and you know the the idea of going back to what we had before i think would be a terrible mistake because it wasn't working you know what we had mm-hmm. wasn't working we were already seeing um a drop off in in housing um supply before corona we were already seeing you know the office and hotel market probably hitting their peak uh, and and most people in the sector were seeing more back onto the same, you know, swings and roundabouts again of uh, overproduction and people very stretched for a few years and, and poor quality sometimes with that. And then a recession where people, you know, were left without work and without income. Um, so we can't really buy into that cycle again. Mm-hmm. And look, I, I, I agree with you. I, I, you know, it doesn't make sense to restore something dysfunctional. It doesn't make sense to to try to recover into a place that was familiar but but that didn't work and that didn't serve the country um you know there's been a lot of talk about 
that we how much capacity and output from the construction sector is going to be impacted for 2020. And that raises um, that raises a really big question because a, a couple of weeks ago I had um, I had the great pleasure of interviewing uh, John McCartney and uh, economist and you know he talked about the difference between the demand and the market. And I know uh, a number of key developers, uh, for example, Michael O'Flynn down in Cork, has done the same thing. You know, we seem to get confused in our in our market commentary. We seem to get confused when we talk about the size of the potential market as opposed to, uh, or sorry, the, the, the demand, people who want things, as opposed to people who can actually are in a position to have their deposit, qualify for mortgage under the central bank rules and actually have affordable property under those two pri- uh, those two factors within their area, you know, close to their job, close to their kids' schools, whatever it is. So we seem to have, have made, there seems to be a disconnect between um the figures that we call demand and then the market that can actually justify that. So if output drops, you know, is that actually going to give us a bit of equilibrium as we go into 2021? Uh, well, I think you're right to, to draw, you know, the distinction between the two things. I mean, if you go back about 100 years, I think something like a third of the population in Dublin lived in overcrowded tenements. Um, uh, so obviously there was an enormous need for housing, but there was no market for it. Um, so, uh, you know, when people conflate population increase or, you know, needs of, of people for housing with a market for housing, um, uh, they're missing the point that people are only in the market if they can afford the housing that's on offer. And we were already mm-hmm seeing that affordability problem biting last year, um, you know, of the maybe 8,000 um, new bills that ca- actually came to market, um, up to 10% of them hadn't sold. Um, so they were pitched into a market that was already saturated and that would have been maybe the commuter belt housing or, or you know, the kind what the market was producing. Um, there weren't enough people who could afford 350 or 400,000 pounds for a commuter belt house in Dublin. Um, the market yeah. is, is, is at a different level and um, you know, I, I can understand why people in the property sector might want to, uh, you know, inflate demand figures um, because it gives more investor confidence, obviously. Uh, but we need to be real about it. And, you know, if, if somebody is thinking now maybe of building a built to rent block with 200 apartments on the basis that they will all be, you know, generating rent of 2000 a month. Um, I, I can't see that happening in an economy where a million people are on social welfare. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, look, OK, if we take a step back, there's been a number of really good, positive initiatives over the past, you know, certainly five, six, seven, eight years. But we we just haven't made inroads in terms of cracking the affordability nut. So what what could we do, you know, at, at a really fundamental level? You know, what can government do to support that? What can industry do to fall in line where we're actually delivering affordable housing? Well, I I think we need to have a a real conversation about the type, the I suppose what what you might call the business model of our our um, housing providers, um, and, and that goes way back, uh, you know, many years. But it's a speculative model whereby most of the profit was made on the land uplift, so through a rezoning, through a planning permission, through a more dense planning permission, through a rising market, um, and and it and it is all predicated, I suppose, on a rising market and to some extent on, you know, conditions of that land changing, in some way, um, and. And, you know, building houses wasn't really the business. It was increasing the land value that was the business. And mm-hmm. it's very, very cyclical. Um, it's very precarious, uh, as we can see uh, at the moment. Um, and it, it really relies generally on a rising market. Otherwise, it stalls. So we have bought into that boom bust cycle and all of the fallout that goes with it. Um, and that is what the cost is in. You know, when developers talking about the high cost of producing housing, what they mean is they have a business model that that is, um, that is uh, you know, high risk, high return, um, and that the cost base of uh, carrying land, speculating on land, speculative planning permissions, um, and all the risk that goes along with that is expensive. It's the risk that, it's, that is expensive. The actual production yeah. costs of 
um, building housing um, uh, is, is fairly straightforward and fairly affordable. And we could be producing housing for under 250,000. Uh, and by that, I mean three bedroom houses or two bedroom apartments. Um, but but that hasn't been um, promoted, I suppose, as as a solution for affordability in Dublin. Um, it's been left to the market. And as we know, last year, the market was looking for, you know, two bedroom apartments at 400,000 in Dublin. And um, there wasn't that many people who were taking it up. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting in terms of the property cycle. Has Is that almost um, a habit of the industry? Because if you think about it, this is one of the business ventures that ought not to be cyclical or that ought to be very, very predictable because, you know, we have data in terms of our population trends and spread. So therefore, we should know not only what the demand is this year, but actually we should have a fairly good sense of what it is in five years time and possibly even in 10 years time. You know, we also now are improving uh, methodologies so that we can to facilitate a a more rapid delivery. So we don't need to have this very long um, property development uh, property development process. You know, we can see that there are various efforts to speed up the planning process. Well, you know, we can see yeah, that sorry. there's... Go ahead. Yeah. yeah. No, no, no. But it just, it seems to me that this shouldn't be cyclical because, in fact, it's one of the most predictable. Um, it, it should be one of the most predictable in terms of trends, just given the data that we have, given the data that we have in our citizens in terms of where they're living, what level of education they have, what income bracket they fall into, what size their household is. You know, this this shouldn't be as um, it shouldn't be speculative. Well, I agree. I mean, point. we need real data. And I think a lot of the. Uh, projections for housing demand have, have have probably been overstated because they were based on, uh, you know, a certain GDP growth every year, you know, uh, you know, and that justified building motorways and doing all sorts of things. But it wasn't really interrogated as to whether it was real. And if we're seeing a ten percent fall in GDP this year, um, that the, all those figures certainly need to be revisited in, in terms of the economy. And mm-hmm. um, the other point that I would take up from from just what you were saying there, Carol, is is in relation to planning. Planning has never been the problem. We have the same. Plan- planning problem we had when we were building 90,000 houses a year in 2006. Uh, We've had a development sector who've been criticising the planning system since the early 1960s when it was put in place. Um, uh, So planning wasn't the problem. And in fact, all of the tweaking and playing around with the planning system in the last few years has actually delayed delivery of housing and added risk. So for any, um, you know, uh, mid-range developer who was trying to do a development all of this chopping and changing on standards and delay um, has actually added risk and added cost in terms of carrying finance. And it didn't do them any favours at all. Uh, and a lot of the larger, you know, some of the larger developers who would have been um, doing repeat planning applications or maybe higher buildings and smaller units on the back of it. Um, you know, it's hard to see now how how any of that was was justified. Uh, and, and I think, um, you know, a stable planning system is what stabilises land values because it, it means everybody's on a level playing pitch and, and they have certainty um, for the next six years of, of the de- development plan cycle. Uh, and and I, I think it's been quite retrograde. We missed the opportunity when there was investment money available over the last number of years. Um, by by looking at the wrong things and 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 by uh, wasting, if you like, some of that opportunity in tweaking a planning system that didn't really that just needed more resources. It didn't need it didn't need structural change. Really, but all of the industry appears to be calling for digital submission. Oh, I totally agree on that. And that's to do with authorities. I mean, yeah. that's yeah, but that that's a structural change that needs to happen. In fact, it's one of the things that that's um, really hampering. Uh, Sorry, what I suppose applications what during this process—that's that's not a legislative change, if you like. That's that's about resources and better yeah. systems, and I I would yeah. completely agree with that. The idea of people, you know, photocopying yeah. ten copies of of endless documents and and delivering box loads to the local authority in this day and age is a, is a waste of everybody's time and resources, and I'm sure a lot of them uh, don't aren't mm-hmm. even opened. Um, I agree with that, but I mean in terms of legislative change, you know, reducing um, standards for built to rent and social housing, um, lifting the height caps, um, changes to part five, all of these things have have delayed development. Yeah, you know, actually, to me, that feels like almost a conversation for another day because I know we have to finish up now. But actually, I think that's really interesting because I would probably take the view that sometimes we call um, some of the standards that changed a reduction in standards when they were actually a change in standards or 
so I, I actually feel like that's almost a conversation. We might have that again. With you. And I know, I, I, I know you're rushing away to another appointment and we need to finish up now. Um, but I, let's, let's put a pin on that and we revisit that. Uh, we revisit that again because actually I, th- I think it's something that um, I, I think it's something that we want changes to come out of this. But absolutely. they need to be the right yeah, changes for the right that. reasons, you know. Yeah, absolutely. OK, listen, we'll leave it there for now. Our thanks again to Orla Hagerty, um, Assistant Professor in the School of Architecture, Planning and Environmental Policy at UCD. We need to take a quick break now. Stay tuned. 93.9 Dublin South FM. Welcome back to Property Matters on Dublin South FM with myself, Carol Tallon. You can contact us on Twitter at iProperty Radio or by email at hello at iPropertyRadio.com. I'm delighted now to be joined by Philip Matthews, Director at Turner and Townsend. Philip, thank you so much for joining us today, remotely, of course. Morning, Carol. Thank you very much for having me. No, delighted. Thank you. Um, so, Philip, at, at Turner and Townsend, your your uh, team members are actually still working on essential projects. So you might just kind of let us know what's happening at the moment within your company. From a T&T perspective, we're working I have to say the transition has been quite smooth, uh, albeit the odd time the internet goes down. But we've, we have we use Skype for business. Uh, various clients use different video calls, uh, video platforms, Teams, BlueJeans. So we've all been used to that in the past. So the transition has been quite smooth. In terms of the essential projects, uh, not effectively not every project is essential, but the, the key ones that we've been involved in is St. Peter's in Portran, uh, CUH in Cork, in terms of providing temporary facilities or acceleration of facilities to provide spaces or facilities uh, just in case they're needed. We, won't, we can't say at this point that they've been used. Uh, we don't have that information. Mm-hmm. OK, well, look, obviously your team was well set up and geared towards this, having an agile structure, but... Um, in terms of the clients that you're working with, how are they managing? It varies from client to client. Uh, some have had to transition. Some haven't been used to having video calls. Uh, you know, by our nature, our business is quite personal. Uh, we have relationships with our clients and they're generally face to face. But, you know, we, we do a lot of our managing of projects remotely. Uh, there's very little projects that need to happen in person these days. It's just transitioned uh, with those clients and teaching our clients how to use the various technologies and prove to them that as a business, as an industry, that we can still keep going. And I have to say, comfortably, we've had the odd project that stopped. I think we all probably have suffered that experience. But the majority of the projects that are in design, we've been able to manage very efficiently. Okay, and do you think that some of these, in terms of, say, interfacing with clients, do you think that these are processes that will stick beyond the restriction shutdown? It's 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 unknown yet uh, when our lifting of restrictions is going to happen. It's been socialised in the media that it's possibly this coming weekend, the bank holiday, um, and they're talking about essential sites and essential industries reopening, which we would hope construction is one of those. Certainly, it's one that's been uh, intimated uh, within the media. Uh, I don't see offices coming back quite as quickly. They're not an essential uh, service or item to open. So I would see. You know, the video meetings, the teams getting together on the video calls, I think that's going to continue. Uh, I don't think it's a bad thing either. Uh, we all have to play our part. And if we can keep socially distancing uh, for another couple of months, as the government seems to be intimating we are required to do, uh, we keep our businesses and our projects running. Um, I see it'll it'll maintain that test of endurance, uh, resilience for these projects, and it'll demonstrate to our clients that we're able to do that and do it you know, quite efficiently. Yeah, absolutely. Look, there's certainly technology at the moment is being tested. You know, a lot of the things that we've been using maybe that had, you know, that that had benefits, but were essentially more of a novelty than a necessity. Now they're a necessity and they're really being tested and some are holding up very well and some aren't. And that's just the nature of innovation and testing new systems and technologies. But you have an advantage given that Turner and Townsend is a, a global organization. So you have the advantage, say, in terms of restart and construction, you can look at your organizations in global economies where they have actually restarted the economy. So, for example, China, um, you you issued last week, um, Turner and Townsend in Dublin issued a circular there and restarting construction sites in Ireland, taking the lessons that your colleagues um, in China had learned. So let's focus on that for a moment, because obviously we are hopeful that, you know, while essential projects are ongoing now, we are hopeful that 
what's classified as essential is going to be broadened over the, the coming weeks and certainly months. So let's actually look at some of the specific lessons that have been learned from your colleagues in China when it came to research and construction projects. Sure. Um, part of the reason why we did this is to provide some insights to the industry, our clients, our colleagues and you know, design team partners out there. Um, one thing we don't have in Ireland is anecdotal evidence of, you know, this is a one in 100 event. So we, we've no evidence, you know, we've had the shutdown. We don't know how quickly we're going to restart. We don't know how quickly we're going to get the numbers of workers, the supply chain back up to capacity or a new norm in terms of capacity. So this is one of the reasons that we, we did this insight piece. So in terms of China, you know, at, at this stage, there are seven weeks on the, roughly from a restart. They restarted on the 2nd of March. Um, and similar to what's been implemented quite welcomely by the CAF here in Ireland, is they, they had to introduce measures at sort of my, macro level and micro site level in terms of, you know, looking at where in terms of procedures, where was the staff returning from? Okay. Uh, were they foreign workers? Were they, they local staff? You know, had, if there were foreign, you know, quarantine periods, 14-day periods, which again has been socialised in the media uh, for Ireland over the weekend, you know, they, they had to undergo tests to demonstrate that they were free from COVID-19 and they were fit to work. Uh, from a site perspective, there was mandatory temperature checks for all staff who were entering. Mm-hmm. Um, there was inspectors on sites to ensure that you know, the social distancing that were set out in the procedures were actually being followed. Uh, face masks, uh, face shields, they were mandatory. Uh, they were looking at, in terms of social distancing, uh, looking at the canteens, uh, the types of work that were being undertaken to ensure that they can be socially distanced. If they weren't, and there's times that they couldn't do that, which I think will be relevant here in Ireland as well, uh, they had procedures in terms of the full PPE. Uh, and again, there was some negativity about some of the sites before the shutdown. There is types of jobs and activities in our in our industry that you know there there's a buddy system mm-hmm. that'll prevail once this is lifted. So it's the common sense uh, procedures that were implemented there, which I see similar in the CIF procedures, will have to be implemented here. Yeah. Um, they had UV cleaning on sites. Um, you know, if there was a rote in terms of the use of the staff canteens as well as social distancing, and they were sanitised uh, after each sitting of uh, a group of. Uh, of site workers, uh, our site management. Uh, there was increased sanitation uh, points on all the sites. And as I said a moment ago, inspection across all the sites. Yeah. So it's it worked well. So uh, at this point, you know, seven weeks on, there are sites are up to about 90% capacity in terms of resources. Although one anecdote they've noticed is that uh, about 10% of the workforce still hasn't returned. And, uh, you know, is that being attributed to them being another in other um, geographical areas or is it maybe that they have people within their home who have underlying conditions or health vulnerabilities that might preclude them from returning? Do we do we know what that is? They don't have full insight to it yet. What they suspect, there's a mixture of that. There's also a fear mm-hmm. still prevailing with people that they don't want to return. Yeah. Um, uh, I, look, I, I think you've you've rightly pointed out that the Construction Industry Federation, you know, they've done a tremendous job in actually taking the HSE guidelines and uh, translating them into what that would actually look like on, um, on a building site. But the focus has very much been on a traditional building site. And it appears to me, and certainly in conversations with members of the off-site construction sector here in Ireland, that... Um, off-site construction and methods, uh, more modern methods of construction might actually be helpful in terms of designing in solutions um, to to enable social distancing, um, but also in terms of catching up on program delays and um, program delays that are actually going to push some projects into a territory that just makes them not viable. So, you know, do we? Do you break down the experience in terms of traditional and offsite construction? No, we haven't broken that down as part of our insight. But I do share some of those uh, beliefs. You know, there is going to be types of work that can't maintain social distancing. I think this will be the moment, similar to us working from home and testing technologies. I think offsite construction, manufacturing such as this, is going to do nothing but add positivity uh, to a situation where people are afraid. Uh, there remains that fear 
or it just proves impossible to do certain types of tasks in the future. Um, there's going to be huge uh, influx, I believe, in offsite construction and manufacturing. Yeah, that's it. that seems to be kind of the general consensus. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out in terms of uh, planning for new projects, um, but also to, for projects that maybe are at a stage of planning or, or early design and planning stage, you know, if, if they will start to look towards offsite construction solutions and I suppose it's possibly too early to say that now but um, let's take let's take kind of a, a macro level approach or a macro level view of the learnings that your organization has shared internationally you know we can see in China you know you pointed out that there was um, an injection of of government investment really to almost compensate for losses. So rather than pulling back on large capital or infrastructure projects, they've actually moved forward and committed further investment. You know, is that something you think we're likely to see here in Ireland? We would hope that it would be the case, although Pascal Donoghue has issued a press release on the 14th of April, which uh, has caused some concern uh, in that it's pressed pause or created some anxiety in terms of the future uh, viability of projects or whether projects in the public sector will go ahead. You know, granted, I appreciate the government has done a sterling job in terms of supporting uh, the industry, uh, people out there in terms of salary supports. But at this time, we really need to see greater investment by the government. We haven't had a stop due to economic activity. It's a once in a one, once in a lifetime or one in one hundred event. It's a virus. Now, you know, it's still very positive, you know, talking to a lot of the industry out there, uh, the transactions that were taking place, you know, they were saying Q1 was fantastic, it's probably one of the best they've ever had. So the, the virus has shut this down. So they need injections of money from the government investment to ensure uh, the public capital works program is maintains the, the pace that it was at, or perhaps even pick it up. Because the anecdotes from China so far is not all of private sector has restarted. Um, but they're seeing huge, huge influx of investment from government over there. Okay. Um, I know it's probably too early to ask you this, but do we know what we can expect from um, private projects? I, what I can say in terms of our own experience, uh, all of our clients that we're speaking with at the moment, because that's the new thing, you know, we, we, we speak regularly to our clients, but it's even more important to do so now in this this, this time of crisis to give them that reassurance and the positivity that we're looking after their projects. So far, we've had no clients saying that they're stopping any projects within TNT. Mm-hmm. Um, I would hope that's the evidence for the majority of my colleagues in the industry that they see this as a short-lived item. There is worry, though, within uh, some client bodies, with within some of my peers that I speak to out there, there is an unknown in terms of the additional costs that the measures that COVID-19 has seen or will see us introduce will bring to projects in terms of programme, the additional costs uh, associated with, you know, the social distancing. Um, they all are things that we don't have a full idea of yet. So there's there's an uncertainty with clients, but so far our clients are still on board. They still want to progress with projects. Yeah. But time will tell. Um, we see a lot of uh, talk in the media, you know, of businesses that mightn't reopen after this. Hopefully they do. Mm-hmm. We want to go back to a functioning society. Um, but we don't have a, a full answer to that yet, Carol. Yeah, look, it's interesting. And all of the issues that you brought up there that are so, that, that um, there are uncertainties around, all of those are compounded by the fact that we don't know how that will play out on a contract basis as well. So, um, look, Philip, before we let you go, you might just look, are, are there any practical measures um, that you could you can point out here that might actually help the Irish industry as they're preparing to return to building sites over the coming weeks and months? Certainly, the, the CAF procedures that are there, I think they're a robust set of guidelines. They're not... Uh, something that have to be followed to to the letter. There's suggestions. There, there's guidelines in there. So you know, sites vary. They can't write uh, instructions for every single site that's out there. It has to be practical. Uh-huh. Uh, work with the CAF, um, our representative bodies out there, the SESI uh, or AI Engineers Ireland. They're all coming out supporting the CAF procedures, coming out with their own procedures that complement those as well. I think they're practical measures we need to follow as an industry uh, to get our industry back up and running. Uh, maybe as a small note, broadband, it probably re-emphasizes the need for the rural broadband as a lot more people now are 
be forced to work yeah. uh, and suffer with the lack of broadband out there and maybe the investment in that. Yep, that's something I talk about every time Zoom goes down um, in, our, <laughs> in our home office. So, so I, I definitely take that point on board. Um, we'll leave it there for now. That was Philip Matthews, Director at Turner and Townsend. We need to take another quick break and we'll be back shortly. Stay tuned. 93.9 Dublin South FM And welcome back to Property Matters on Dublin South FM with myself, Carol Tallon. We are still recording from home as the radio station is operating remotely in full compliance with government guidelines. I'm delighted to be joined over the phone by Owen Leonard, CEO of I3PT Certification. Owen, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, delighted. Uh, thanks for having me on, Carol. Very good. Um, Owen, I3PT certification will be a well-known brand in the industry, but you might just let our audience know um, really what it is that you do. Yeah, I suppose in a in a nutshell, the first thing people want to find out is what it stands for. Uh, I3PT obviously is, a, is an acronym, and we, we joke that that's what happens when engineers are left in charge of marketing. Uh, <laughs> it, it stands for Independent Third Party Testing, um, and the company was established in 2012. I'm the, the founder and, and CEO. Um, uh, but the company was founded in 2012 uh, fundamentally to uh, assure quality in construction and to try to improve uh, cultures um, on construction sites. So we do that kind of two key ways. One is through services and, and the other is through our software division. Um, and, and I suppose on the services side, where we'd be best known in Ireland is for delivering uh, regulatory compliance as assigned uh, certifiers. Uh, but we also offer uh, clients technical advisory services where we sit client side and, and check design and construction uh, throughout the, the project lifecycle. Uh, um, and, and on the services, uh, sorry, on the software side of our business, we have a, a software as a service application uh, which manages construction projects, and that's called Cert Central. Um, so, and that, that we, we operate across Ireland and the UK at the moment, and we're planning to enter the US market uh, probably towards the end of this year, depending on how everything goes. Okay, and in terms of your SaaS model there, um, how long have you been offering the software solution? Yeah, the software solution has been, I suppose, it's been operational and working on projects since 2014 um, in, in, in Ireland and the UK. Uh, we only started offering it as a service and, and, and selling it effectively uh, probably in the last three years. Um, and uh, it was the typical uh, age-old story of we, we had developed Cert Central principally uh, to manage our own process, which is a very rigorous process for managing quality on site. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the rigor that we applied for things like BCAR and, and, and for, for performance uh, on projects, uh, our clients kept coming back to us asking, uh, well, could you track planning conditions using this system? And we said, oh, yeah, you could do that. And we, we added that as a feature. And then we, we brought in design management features and we brought in a, a version of a common data environment for managing uh, design documentation and for and, and we're at a point now where it does everything from project management to process management, document management, quality management, design management. And it's a, a very rich tool at this point. So we, I guess it's, it's currently in use on projects with something of a construction value in excess of 10 point something billion, 10.5 billion, I think, at the last count. So it's, it's, it's being used to manage a, a pretty uh, major uh, list of projects. And, it's and everything. is that, is that yeah. across Ireland and the UK? Yeah, yeah, principally, yeah, yeah, Ireland and the UK. We've, we've one or two outliers as well, kind of uh, strange ones in, in, uh, that, that wouldn't be typical projects that would be in, in the EU and uh, with some of our multinational clients. But the the bulk of our work is Ireland and the UK. Uh, we were in Manhattan uh, uh, back in November, uh, meeting with some new clients over there, new potential clients. And I suppose one of the benefits of being uh, in Ireland is we also have a lot of foreign direct investment clients who are based overseas who are starting to work with uh, a little bit more as well. Um, but yeah, it's, it's everything from social health housing to uh, premiership football stadiums, you know, and, and everything in between. So data centers, uh, I think the, the the real benefit of our tool is it seems to be applicable to virtually every industry that we've worked in, you know, and that can be modified and uh, to, to be um, to be used in all of those those areas. So, yeah, it's been great. Yeah. Uh, that's that's an interesting, it's an interesting one because when we count the benefits of um, FDI projects in Ireland, I think that maybe we underestimate how they act as a springboard for Irish suppliers to access yeah. new markets. And that's and yet we see in the startup culture um, that that's a really important first step. So it's interesting to hear your experience of that. Yeah. Yeah. I think the I, I've always talked about um uh, from an economic point of view, they, they say one of the key things to have uh, for, for a very competitive sector is a, is a sophisticated demand. And we absolutely have that in Ireland. And I, you see that when we go to the UK. I think for years when we would go to the UK, 
and we would be going to meet a big client, we would always have that little bit of a, a nagging fear in the back of your head where you think, well, geez, you know, we're the small guys. Maybe we, maybe, maybe we'll show them what we're doing and they go, oh, sure, we've been doing that for years, you know? Yeah. But what we find is actually because we were a little, we're, we're a small island, but we've a massively sophisticated demand from some of the biggest companies in the world, building very sophisticated and, and interesting projects over here. That when we go over there, actually, and when we show them what we're doing and what we what we've developed, um, we're, we're we're quite a ways ahead usually, you know. Um, yeah. And, and uh, yeah, we're, we're always, I suppose, we're not surprised by it anymore. But for the first few years, we were always kind of surprised. And I guess there's a good friend of mine who works at KPMG, though. He, he, he uh, Connor McCarthy, he would always say to me. Um, the extra mile is in a crowded place, you know, and yeah. I think that's, that's very true. And the Irish companies seem, seem to do that very well. It's, yeah, look, that's very true. Um, actually, you know, you, you use the term sophisticated demand. Yeah. Um, now, that's something that I would usually associate with um, early adapters who are res- who are receptive to new technologies, but also who are well resourced to sure. invest in new technologies. And, you know, look, frankly, it hasn't always been our experience that the industry leaders are uh, that they make up the sophisticated demand. So in Ireland, I step away from the FDA clients for a moment in terms of the traditional sector in Ireland. Are they at the point where they are what you would call sophisticated consumers? Are they ready and are they willing to resource this element of the business? I think quality is recognised. If you take it, if you break it up into its components, right? I think BIM is something that that has been adopted pretty well. Um, people see the benefit of it. Are they are they doing it well or correctly all the time? Certainly not. But there there's a willingness uh, to adopt BIM, and there's a, an understanding that's something they should do. Uh, when we look at environmental certification, I think we've been pretty good to take that type of thing forward. The area that has probably lagged the most is quality. Um, I, I think quality is an area. For a long time, it has been seen as something that's kind of nebulous and, and checklist-based in construction. If you have the check sheets, you must have done it correctly, you know. So I think the the digitalization of that has been slow, uh, but we are starting to see the demand. Um, certainly at main contractor level, uh, they, they're they're getting much better, um, and there's an adoption of, of digital tools on site that, that's uh, far greater than it would have been three four years ago. I think BCAR to a large extent helped to precipitate that because the reporting requirement was greater immediately, and even if the legislation itself has some 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 problems. I think the uh, requirement for people to supervise and inspect more drove uh, drove, drove the adoption of new technologies uh, in a way I hadn't seen before. Uh, but but if you look at the CIOB uh, in the UK, they've done some very interesting studies about the the UK's performance and quality. We don't do the same types of studies here quite as often, but they took a very good look at themselves. And, and I think you know three quarters of people surveyed felt that uh, the quality was being uh, managed very very poorly. You know, um, uh, so okay. I think it's. It, 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 we're at the beginning of where we can go with quality, I think, and, and uh, uh, construction doesn't deal with quality in the way that manufacturing and other people have dealt with it, and, and our productivity as a result, and, and the amount of lost revenue through rework is, is drastic. I mean, in the UK last year, or two years ago, I think it was, they surveyed and they found that the, the industry spent more on defects than they earned in profits, you know? So in, a, yeah. in, a, in a, an industry that, that the margins are so razor tight, um, it's insane that you would spend more as an industry on fixing problems than you would on, uh, than, than you would actually accrue in profits over the course of the year. So there's a huge opportunity there for for contractors and for for everybody really for clients to um, uh, to avoid defects, disputes, and delays, destroying the value that everybody worked so hard to create. You know. Yeah. Well, actually, I've never heard the, those stats in terms of the losses on rework. So I definitely want to come back to that. But before sure. we move on to Quality, which is actually probably the driving issue right now. Can I just ask you, because I've asked a number of the guests on the show over the past 15 months here, um, in terms of BIM adoption rates in Ireland, yeah. um, uh, taking it that um, industry adoption rates of maybe 15% is considered a, a tipping rate, a tipping point, yeah. you know, where do you think we are in Ireland in 2020? Uh, to be honest, in terms of ratios, I wouldn't be certain. A lot of the clients that we're working with tend to be on the, on the larger scale. Right? So I think if you're looking at the the larger scale projects and the high density projects, by and large, are, are, are operating um, uh, using BIM now, or some level of BIM. Uh, some of the BIM consultants that I would speak to on a regular basis would call it quasi BIM. Uh, you know, it's 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 not it's not the full story, but it's a it's, it's an attempt at it. I think there's probably a misunderstanding as well. Uh, people will often talk about the 3D element of it, and everybody thinks it's about the model, but it's really about a process. It's about a I suppose, a, a methodology and a way of designing that's a little different. And I think that's probably where the challenge is. I think everybody understands that this is something I should do, but they don't often understand uh, that it's going to change the way you work, right? Um, so it's not just a software thing, and it's not just a, a consultant that you bring in. 
it's a new way of working. And and um, I think that's the the biggest challenge. So the willingness is there. And, and we would certainly see most of our projects that we're on now would have some degree of BIM integration or some degree of of of, um, uh, of, of BIM involved in the project. But it's, it's varying degrees. And it's, um, it's a little bit from column A and a little bit from column B, you know, so. Okay. Yeah. And what's, what's driving that? Like, um, you know, because we, we saw certainly um, uh, over the past decade for larger projects, particularly FDI projects, that this was very much client driven. Um, so what are you experiencing at the moment? You know, are, are people coming to to um, to embrace different uh, methods of modern construction and methodologies? Are they adopting this because it is best practice or are they adopting it because their clients are requiring it? I think it's principally uh, a client requirement, um, like most things in, in construction. I think, I think it, it, you know, you know, with, with all the best will in the world, if there's not a commercial case for, for doing something, people won't do it. Uh, and that, that's unless unless there's a, a really strong ethical reason for doing something, uh, which we have seen some some changes there. But by and large, I think um, people wanting to use BIM uh, on, on construction projects it tends to be more to do with the fact that it, it would be a requirement for a purchaser or it would be a requirement for the uh, property managers, the, the facility managers on buildings uh, to, to have a, a federated model and, and, um, and, and I suppose accurate information, that, that golden thread that we, we hear about from, from Grenfell. Uh, I, I do think it's principally been driven from that. In the UK, we, we would have seen, you see, that they, they brought it in a government level. Uh, they mandated that BIM Level 2 had to be... Um, uh, implemented on projects a, a number of years ago uh, of a certain scale and that would have I suppose in one sense that would have driven the industry to a, to a certain point anyway and, and I think you talk about the tipping point once something like that happens Ireland are starting to follow suit on their their, their um, uh, public projects as well once something like that happens enough practices start to make the change and, and actually you know you don't have to mandate them anymore on projects after a certain point in time because it's just how people do it you know Mm-hmm. And well, again, see, this is breaking down. This is b- breaking down probably uh, regulatory standards, yeah. uh, established or emerging best practice. Yeah. But also, you're dealing with this cultural shift and a change of behaviours that needs to happen. Sure. You mentioned there the golden thread is recommended by the Hackett Report yeah. post uh, Grenfell. You might just explain that for listeners. Yeah, so there was a, there was a series of recommendations made um, uh, post uh, post the Grenfell disaster. Uh, so there was a, 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 a an inquiry that's still ongoing, and, and there was a lot of findings from that, were, which were very very interesting. And, and Ireland should probably take uh, pay, pay close attention to what's going on there. But the uh, among the recommendations was that a digital golden thread of information should be stored for projects. So the term golden thread is is used to describe a system or a methodology of of capturing that. Now, that might not be one system, it could be multiple, but basically there has to be a methodology for capturing key decisions in a transparent and accountable way, uh, which obviously from the point of view of what we've done with Start Central over the years, we've understood that since 2012, 2014, but we needed to have something like that uh, because as a certification body that, that you know, which is our, the, the way we're structured, um, we have to evidence to our own chief compliance officer, we have to evidence to external uh, auditors as well, that we are capturing evidence of everything we do. So we've always had an understanding of that as a requirement, but that's not something that came from within the construction industry. Our, our chief compliance officer actually comes from the food business. So the guy that we brought in to run compliance in I3PT uh, would have been a key consultant uh, for, for some uh, government stakeholders and government bodies in the area of agribusiness and food. Uh, so a lot of our methodology actually came from outside of construction. So I think that golden thread that's being talked about now um, and is being asked for is is something that would exist in all kinds of other industries. There's always a, a an audit trail or a decision um, uh, tree that you can go back to and you can refer to those decisions. But if you look at the, the discovery uh, emails that came out in the Grenfell inquiry, some of the conversations that were captured on email between design team members and contractors and, and manufacturers don't make for very good reading. And if that was uh, to be captured in something like Cert Central or any of the other tools that are out there that capture this information, people would not say the things they said on email in a system that everybody can see. And I think the key thing here is that there's a system for capturing a, a decision has been made and the rationale for that decision in such a way that it will bear close scrutiny, but also records of inspection, records of defect management, records of certification and commissioning and everything else. It's not about paper, it's about the process. And I think um, the golden thread that they're they're calling for in the UK is, is something we, we've been doing a little bit of here for, for a while, um, to a greater or lesser extent, uh, but but they're really, uh, they're, they're, they're about to change the regulations over there. They brought in a new uh, building safety bill, 
Uh, we could have similar gateways to what we have for BCAR now uh, in terms of um, issuing fire safety reports at planning stage uh, and, and various other things that will have to go in at the, the, the earliest gateway, gateway one. At gateway two, which is pre-commencement, they're going to have to issue documentation to a building safety regulator, which appears to be similar in nature to what will go with a commencement notice for BCAR. And again, at completion stage, they'll have to send a documentation and, and information to the building safety regulator for acceptance before they can actually use the building. So they, they have uh, the people in the CIOB and other people have been looking closely at what has worked well in VCAR. Um, uh-huh. they, they, uh, I know from consultations over there, we're, we've been speaking to a number of people and we're, we're actually engaging with the CIOB on a, on a new study around the Golden Thread in the UK this year, which will be a national study uh, to see, I guess, how ready the industry is to, to take on those recommendations and how equipped they are to deliver on it, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah, and look, again, we're, we're coming back to this situation where we're moving beyond there needing to be a commercial case yeah. uh, to drive changes in the in the industry. And obviously, that's where we need to get to. And I suppose very briefly before we let you go, Owen, you know, you know you've just detailed changes that um, are coming about uh, as a result of one particular event, but also one trends that were in train over the past uh, number of years, particularly in the UK. But obviously... Um, in recent weeks, we've seen a huge change and the ground shifting from underneath the industry here in Ireland. You know, what kind of changes are you seeing in work practices here? Yeah, I guess we'll, 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 it'll all come to light in the next few weeks. So, so certain projects are still open um, uh, on site and, and, and on those projects, the there's major shifts in, in terms of how people are working. Obviously, the, the limitations on the number of people on the ground means that productivity is, is down massively. Uh, anecdotally, that's in, in Ireland and the UK. Uh, so we're productivity mm-hmm. down uh, anecdotally by as much as 30 to 40 percent on some sites and uh, they're now starting to bring in new measures such as shift work where, where one group will start working in the morning and that group continues to work together uh, and, and then in the evening another group takes over so they're going to uh, okay and um, Owen as as a driver or a proponent of modern methods of construction you know when you see the traditional sector kind of scrambling for solutions like uh, um, shift working does it surprise you that the automatic thinking isn't going towards maybe a more uh, manufacturer-driven process like offsite construction? I do think I do think people there's definitely willingness to do that. The commercial case is difficult at times. Um, there's a few a few things there. I guess it, it tends to be um, uh, quite a bit more expensive at the moment. Uh, I guess the, the issue for a lot of the clients that we've spoken to, we've a, a whole bunch of our clients have been keen to do it. And we're actually really keen to do it as well. We've worked we worked on a number of um, uh, uh, offsite construction projects actually to date. We're currently working on one of the largest in Europe uh, right now for a client. Um, I think it is the largest in Europe. And we've got buildings being constructed in Dallas, in in, um, in Germany, in China, a whole bunch of different places where we're actually doing factory inspections and checking the work in the factory. Right. I guess the big risk with something like this is a you know if it's if it's not going to save a whole bunch of time on the program, which Sometimes the savings in terms of time aren't necessarily there uh, and it's not going to be cheaper. Um, you know, th- there's it, it's sometimes difficult to make the case. It is the future, but yeah. it's 100% That's... where it's going, Carol. And, and it, you yeah. know, I think there will have to be some early adoption. Uh, there will have to be people who take a chance in it. And the difficulty for these guys is critical mass. Um, there's, yeah. there's there's a lot of guys doing offsite construction at the moment. We'll probably see some, some consolidation there. Uh, you've seen CISC have picked up a, 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 an organization in um, in Ireland and they've, they've, they've vertically integrated them. I know BAM have done likewise and, and we're starting to see that as a trend in the UK as well. I think if there's a, a, a if there's a main contractor or developer attached to the offsite construction company or, or similar, it makes their it makes it makes the revenue model a little bit better and it probably makes the economies of scale greater. Uh, but it, it's it, we're just a little early, I think, in terms of it being the business case being there for some of our clients. Um, yeah. yeah. No, I think it's I think it's interesting to reflect that uh, where productivity losses on foot of COVID-19 are estimated or forecast to be in the region of 30 to 40 percent. And then we know that um, some offsite construction methodologies can offer program savings um, of between 30 and 40 percent. It seems to me like a trend that's waiting to happen that might actually accelerate at this time. But I think maybe the next the next few weeks, months and certainly into 2021 will will tell a lot. Um, but for now, that was Owen Leonard, CEO of I3PT Certification. Uh, Owen, thank you so much for being with us today. That's it from us today. Uh, thank you for listening into Property Matters on Dublin South FM, the show where property matters. 
You can get in touch with the show by emailing hello at iPropertyRadio.com or on Twitter at iPropertyRadio. Again, apologies for any sound quality um, issues. Obviously, as we're recording remotely, unfortunately, that's par for the course at the moment. Um, also, my thanks to Peter Rice on sound and show producer Kate Talon of Hear Me Roar Media. We're back at the same time next week. From myself, Carol Talon, and all the team here, stay safe.